here earlier, but I thought we might just keep singing. That was just uh, really great singing. Appreciate Brian. Good seeing your participation. Appreciate your presence here this morning. We do have visitors. You're our honored guest, as always, and we want you to know that. We want you to stay around and let us have an opportunity to visit with you and come back at every opportunity that you have. We appreciate the encouragement that you offer by your presence here and all of our members who are here as well. We appreciate your encouragement, your presence. Let me begin by asking a question. How many of us live for any length of time without needing compassion? You know, we sang in one of our songs, uh, the God of compassion, O thou God of compassion. And truly, our God is a God of compassion. And as human beings created in the image of God, we should recognize that we need compassion. And I think if we've lived very long, we know that we need compassion from others. But another question is, how many live without the opportunity to show that compassion? If indeed we live long enough to need it, then obviously, if we live long enough, we're going to have opportunity to demonstrate it and to extend compassion to others. And what do we mean by that word, compassion? Well, if you look at it in the dictionary, Webster would tell you that it is a, it is a suffering with another, sympathy, sorrow for the distress or the misfortune of another, with the desire to help. That is, the desire to help alleviate that sorrow. It is, it is pity, Webster tells us. It is commiseration. Indeed, compassion is a very powerful and very needful quality in the world in which we live today. But let me ask you this, is our world as a whole today, is it characterized by compassion? I'm afraid the honest answer is no, not as a whole. Compassion is not a quality that characterizes our world as a whole. In fact, you hear more and more about self and about the idea that it is all about me and my needs and my wants and my desires. Oh yes, there are a great many people in our world today who may desire to have compassion from others, but what about showing it to others? Why is it that we don't live in a world that is primarily characterized by by compassion that is demonstrated toward others. It has to be because our world as a whole has not learned compassion from the master teacher, from the compassionate Christ. And so we need to turn to him and cry in effect, Lord, teach us to have compassion. And he can and he will. But how does he do it? Let me suggest this morning that there are three ways in which the compassionate Christ helps us to manifest this beautiful but seemingly elusive quality in today's self-serving society. First of all, he teaches compassion by his touch. Secondly, he teaches compassion by his tears. And finally, he teaches compassion by his testament. Look with me at these three ways for just a few minutes this morning. 
First of all, we see that the Lord, as he lived among men, taught compassion by his touch. And the beautiful example of it is found in Mark's account, as we'll look at that account of this leper who came to him. The text says, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And then we find these words. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. Moved by compassion, the Lord Jesus Christ did something that had not been done to that poor human being since he first contracted leprosy. Do you realize how long it had been since he had actually felt the touch of another human being upon him? It had been for as long as he had leprosy. And we're not told how long that was. But no one has touched him. No one would touch him. No one would get near him. He was an outcast. He was one who was avoided at all costs. And no one was allowed to come near him. No one was allowed to touch him. But the compassion of Christ, who had no need whatsoever to touch him in order to heal him, and we know that to be the case, nonetheless reached out and compassionately touched him and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Notice, too, that Jesus did not say, if God is willing, then God through me can do this. No, he said, I am willing. Be cleansed. Thus implying what? I am God. I am a part of the Godhead. I am God in human form. And I am willing, as God in human form, to compassionately touch and to heal you. Now, no doubt the man had faith because he said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And there are occasions where we see a demonstration of faith on the part of the one who was to receive the healing that Jesus and those who possessed miraculous gifts afterwards were able to, to give. But faith was not always mentioned in every case at all. But here this man did have faith. But Jesus, as God on earth, said, I am willing. I'm willing. Not only to heal, but I'm willing to do something no one has done for you since you first contracted this horrible, horrible disease. I'm willing to touch you. And it reminds us, it reminds us that Jesus was willing to touch the lives of all men, regardless of their race, regardless of their social standing, regardless of their educational attainment, because he had compassion for all. Even the little children, remember? In Matthew chapter 19, beginning at verse 13, then little children were brought to him, we are told in that text, that he might, that he might put his hands on them and pray for them. But his disciples rebuked them. The disciples rebuked those who were bringing these little children to Jesus, evidently thinking that the master doesn't need to be troubled by by these little children, but Jesus said to them, 
Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he put his hands on them and departed from there. Jesus touched the little children, and in so doing, reminds us, reminds us of how we need to touch our children. You know, there was a bumper sticker many years ago that I remember saying, have you hugged your kid today? Have you hugged your kid today? Well, that's important. It is important to hug your children. It, it is important to have that, that physical contact and to express that love. In fact, in the very early stages of childhood among newborns, if for whatever reason they are separated from that touch for any length of time, it can produce lasting and devastating effects. Attachment deficit disorder. The worst form of it is, I think, called RAD, reactive attachment deficit. That is bad, bad stuff. But there's something that we might call, not RAD, RAD, but SAD, and that's spiritual attachment deficit. And we need to make sure that in the lives of our children there is never a spiritual attachment deficit, but that we are giving to every member of our family not only that loving physical touch, but the words of love and encouragement and their greatest need of all, and that is their spiritual need. Oh yes, the physical infirmities that Jesus encountered as he lived among men moved him with compassion, but there was a greater illness a greater sickness, it was a spiritual disease, it was this concern that brought him to earth. Jesus didn't come to this earth in order to heal people of leprosy or other diseases. He did that because of his compassion and love and at the same time to also demonstrate that he was exactly who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, God on earth. But it was spiritual sickness that brought him to this earth that caused him to give up equality with God and to humble himself and to take upon himself the form of a servant, to be found in likeness as a man and to, to become obedient to the point of death, as Paul describes it in Philippians 2, even the death of the cross. He didn't die on the cross to relieve us of physical illness. He died on the cross to relieve us of a greater sickness, the spiritual disease. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 and through 38, Jesus saw the multitudes, and here's another incidence of that compassion. When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were, they were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And it prompted him to say to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That's what was ultimately and primarily on the Lord's mind as he lived among men. Laborers sent into the harvest to reap a harvest of souls and to save men from their greatest ailment, their spiritual ailment. Oh yes, Jesus touched those whom the religious elite shunned. 
and he answered his critics, the Pharisees and the scribes, many of the Jews of his day, he answered them with very poignant and powerful lessons on the value of one soul, as we shall see in a few moments. And to many of those Jewish leaders, he said, you bind burdens upon men that they are not able to bear, and you would not touch one of them with one of your fingers. Matthew 23, 1 through 5. Yes, he did say, these scribes and Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they, they are authoritative in, in telling you what the law of Moses tells you to do. And so understand that authority and follow the law, but don't follow their example. Because they will bind heavy burdens upon you, but they won't touch them, in other words, with one finger. The Lord touched the lives of people. It's one thing to teach, it's another to touch, isn't it? And the Pharisees of Jesus' day, for the most part, did their works for the praise from men. It was not compassion it was not compassion that compelled the Pharisees in their religious actions. It was not compassion. It was missing. The compassion was because the message and motivation behind it were misunderstood and misapplied. And as Christians today, we must never become guilty of the same misapplication of truth that would lead us to self-righteousness and breed contempt rather than compassion. Remember what John wrote in 1 John 3, 17 and 18? He said, but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart to him, how can the love of God abide in him? And then he said, my little children, let us love not in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now that's an elliptical expression. John was not saying, don't ever tell anybody you love them. No, he was just saying, don't love only in word and in tongue, but also love in deed and in truth. The Pharisees didn't do that for the most part. But Jesus, the compassionate Christ, did. He not only, he not only revealed the will of God to man by his words, but he did it by his works. He did it by touching the lives of others. But secondly, the Lord taught compassion by his tears. And we see that on more than one occasion. We see the tears of compassion for the lost sheep of the house of Israel in a passage that we have looked at before, Luke 19, verses 41 and following. Very poignant and powerful passage when you consider that he is about to be shedding tears over the very ones who were going to scourge him, spit on him, and ultimately crucify him. And so the text says that as he drew near the city, he wept over it, saying, if you had known, if you had known, even you especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And then he makes a prediction for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another 
Why, Lord? Because you did not know the day of your visitation. That's one of the saddest passages you will ever read in Scripture concerning the life of our Lord and the rejection that he suffered at the hands of those whom he came to save. He said, if you had known, especially you in this your day, if you had just known, if you had just realized the things that make for your peace, the peace that I came to leave with you, the peace that I came to give to you, and yet they are hidden from your eyes. And how pertinent and accurate, tragically, is that statement today about the city of Chattanooga? How pertinent is it about any city you could name anywhere in this world? Because there's not a city anywhere that I can think of, of any size whatsoever, to which this statement would not apply. Oh, if you had just known, if you would just realize the things that make for your peace, and yet they're hidden from your eyes. And so you reject the Christ even today as you reject his word. That's characteristic of the majority of folks, tragically. In this case, he was talking about Jerusalem, and he predicted its ultimate destruction in A.D. 70, which came at the hands of the Romans. His own brethren refused his teaching and brought him to what? Not words of vengeance. Not you're going to get what you deserve now, Jerusalem. No. The rejection he knew was coming. The pain that he knew he would suffer brought him to tears. Fully aware of the baptism of suffering he would undergo for his brethren, he grieved deeply, but not for himself, but for them. What an attitude. What an attitude that returns compassion for cruelty. And that's what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul, who admonished us to follow him as he followed Christ, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he learned well this spirit from the compassionate Christ. And he exhibited it in a statement he made in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, when he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. One chapter earlier in Romans 9, he said, Brethren, I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren's sake. Oh, he learned well the spirit of compassion from the compassionate Christ. And he expressed it there and elsewhere. His tears are mentioned specifically in Acts 20 in his exchange with the Ephesian elders at Miletus at verse 28 and following when he said, Brethren, I've warned you night and day with tears. In Philippians 3 at verses 17 and 18, he talked about those who were the enemies of the cross of Christ. He said, I've told you about them often and I tell you again now, listen, even weeping 
even weeping. They're the enemies of the cross of Christ. Oh, yes, he understood the spirit of the compassionate Christ, and he demonstrated it in his life. And so must we. How many tears are being shed today for millions upon millions who have never known the compassionate Christ? But when we are sensitive to the value of the soul, to the immortality of the soul, to the impending judgment, and to the awful destination that awaits the disobedient, then compassion will fill our hearts and tears will fill our eyes. But we'll not only weep for the lost, we'll work to bring the lost to Christ, as did the Lord. We'll work to take the saving message of Christ, the compassionate Christ, to a lost and dying world. And what is it that will compel us to do that? Compassion. Compassion will be the overwhelming motivation, the love of God, the compassion of Christ. O thou God of compassion, as we have sung, the realization that we serve a compassionate God whose compassion has been manifested in our lives in the most important possible way if we're Christians this morning, that will motivate us to see that same compassionate God work in the lives of those who are lost. We'll have the same urgency that Jesus had as he walked among men and as he expressed the urgency of his mission in John 9 verse 4, for example, when he said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. There's urgency there, the Lord understood. And there must be that same urgency within us because we do not know that we have another day upon this earth. We all make plans and we like to implement and carry out those plans, the Lord willing, we say. But the key is, James tells us, what is your life? It's a vapor that appears for a little time then vanishes away. And it can happen to the young as well as to the old. We've all been reminded of that just recently with a young teenager, faithful member of the Lord's Church at Eastside in Cleveland. Two weeks after her graduation from high school, she's in her vehicle and a logging truck overturns on it. And she's gone. Her whole life ahead of her just having graduated from high school. Who knows what kind of plans that sweet young girl had. But thankfully she was prepared and understood, understood the importance of obedience to the gospel at the earliest age of accountability and living faithfully to the Lord because we do not know. We do not know. And because we do not know, we need to express the compassion of Christ toward those who are still lost and without hope. There's an exchange between Jesus and his disciples in John 4, verses 31 through 35, where at the beginning of that exchange, the disciples were concerned about the fact that the Lord had not eaten, and so they urged him, Rabbi, eat. And he said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And the disciples, who were still thinking in material terms, turned to each other and said, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And the Lord said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work 
And then he said, do you not say there yet four months and then comes the harvest? Lift up your eyes, he said, and look on the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Look on the fields. They're white for harvest. And so indeed, the tears of Jesus were not crocodile tears. They were tears that were shed for the lost. They were also tears that were shed for the death of a friend as Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five reminds us. And there have been commentators who have discussed the motivation from those tears. Was it simply the loss of Lazarus? After all, he knew he was going to raise him from the dead. Were his tears because of the lack of faith that he saw demonstrated around him by those who who did not have enough faith to believe that he could raise him from the dead. But I can tell you this, those who were present saw those tears as tokens of love and compassion for a departed friend and a bereaved family whom he loved. Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And it's a demonstration to us that we are to weep with those who weep, as Paul later would admonish in his writings. And how many times has consolation been extended among friends? Not by words, because sometimes words just simply don't come. But weeping does. And that conveys that compassion, whether we're able to find the words or not. But finally, the third way in which the Lord taught compassion was by his testament. Oh, and how filled with teaching on compassion is the covenant of Christ. In fact, the motivation for all that Jesus taught was compassion and love. In Mark's record at chapter 6, verse 34, it tells us when he came out on a certain occasion, he saw many people and he was moved with compassion toward them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. And then the next phrase is, and he began to teach them many things. He saw them, was moved with compassion because they were like sheep with no shepherd. And what did he do about it? Having compassion for his sheep, he taught them. His teaching was designed to bring them into the fold of safety. His teaching was designed to lead them through the pastures in peace, to provide them with the bread of life, and ultimately to place them on his right hand at the judgment, having heard, well done, good and faithful servant. But if his sheep were to achieve this blessed state, they would need lessons on compassion. And truly, the testament of Jesus is filled with such teaching. Time doesn't permit a detailed study of these two familiar lessons from Luke's account. But we'll introduce them and leave them with you to hopefully spend more time in studying them. The parable of the Good Samaritan demonstrates compassion in relieving physical suffering. And you've studied it, I'm sure, many times. It's a parable in Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37, that was given in response to the lawyer's question. Remember, he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered in parable form. And as he did, he talked about this Samaritan 
who did not act as did the Levite and the priest who passed by on the other side. But the Samaritan rendered aid to a man that was quite likely a Jew, one for whom there was hatred and bitterness between the Jews and the Samaritans. And yet the Samaritan, who could have been bitter because of his own discrimination, suffered at the hands of the Jews, was compassionate nonetheless. He saw a man in need. His heart was moved with compassion. But there was more than feeling. His feet got involved. And he took the man to the end. And then in verse 35, you see his funds getting involved. He got his pocketbook involved as well. And we need to be involved to the best of our ability in benevolence. It's a vital work of the church. No, benevolence alone does not save, but one cannot be saved without being benevolent. Showing compassion toward all who suffer. And when that parable was done, the lawyer is made to answer his own question. Who was the neighbor? And the lawyer said it was the one who showed mercy. And he answered correctly. And the whole matter is concluded with an admonition from Christ that cries for compassion from us today, and here it is. Go do likewise. That's the message of Jesus for us. Go do Likewise. And quickly, the second great lesson in Luke emphasizes the compassion for souls. You remember Matthew 16, 26, for what, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then when we turn to Luke 15, Jesus teaches by parable the importance of one precious soul. The Pharisees and the scribes prompted these parables by criticizing him for eating with sinners, tax collectors. Pharisees and scribes, verse 2 of Luke 15, complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And that prompted the parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy, better known as the prodigal son. But when you look at those first ten verses... In this chapter, you see an emphasis on one and the value of one precious soul. In verse 4, if he loses one of them. In verse 7, more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Verse 8, if she loses one coin. And verse 10, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels over, of God over one sinner who repents. One, 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 one. The emphasis on one precious soul. How reassuring it is to know of the awareness of the Father of one, of you, and of me. What a picture of compassion for the penitent, we see. But in the final parable, the only negative we find is in the attitude of the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son who desires to be like he was without compassion. And yet when compassion is not cultivated by looking to the compassionate 
Christ. We may be as he was. We may ultimately find ourselves consumed with jealousy or resentment over the affection and the attention given to others or over the lack of affection and attention that we think should come to us. So we need to cry to the Lord. Lord, teach us to have compassion by the touch of thy hand and the tears on thy face. Lord, teach us to have compassion for the sick and the sinner of every tribe and race. Lord, teach us to have compassion through the truth of thy testament, final and complete. Lord, teach us to have compassion that we may receive it one day when thee we shall meet. Compassion brought Christ to this earth and gave all of us the simple but absolutely essential plan by which we can be saved from sin. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, John 8, 24. Repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. Confess him to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, and be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. The compassionate Christ has given us a simple but absolutely essential plan for saving us from the greatest disease that has ever plagued or ever will plague mankind, the disease of sin. Thanks be to God, there is a remedy through the great physician. If you have not come to him in obedience to that plan, please do so this morning. And if you've done that, but you need to come home to your first love as one who once embraced that plan lovingly and obediently, but allowed the world to enter and to distract you and ultimately destroy you. Thanks be to God, there's a way home, and that is a way of repentance, confession of sin that needs to be confessed publicly, and a prayer to God as we pray with you and for you, with the full assurance as that beautiful parable of the prodigal son reveals, is waiting with open arms, looking in your direction, and desiring to have you home. Will you come home if you need to? And for those who need no public response, May you ever look to the compassionate Christ and demonstrate that same compassion to the fullest extent of your ability for as long as life is yours. And oh, how blessed we'll ultimately be to receive that compassion when we need it so desperately as we stand before him in the judgment. As we stand to sing, will you come?